Mark chapter 13. As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress, distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge. 
each with his assigned task and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. I was sitting on the bus this week coming back from the city and um, I was reading a book, actually it was a, a book about this chapter of the Bible that we're looking at today. And the next second, I wake up to everything slipping off my lap and I quickly try and grab my phone and my bag and the book before it lands at the feet of the person who's sitting next to me. And I just managed to catch it in time. I'm not very good at, at keeping myself in awake, awake in those kind of situations. And my great fear in those kind of situations is that I'm going to fall asleep on the shoulder of the person next to me <laughs> and maybe dribble a little bit. I was like that at uni as well. During class, even sometimes though the lecturer was standing right in front of me giving me evils, I'd still be nodding my head. And sometimes we had these kind of fold-up tables. Sometimes they'd actually crash down to the ground. My problem was that I just didn't care enough about pharmaceutics. It just didn't grip me and hold my attention. But this week, as I was thinking about how much I struggled to stay awake in those kind of situations, it made me think of a different time. A long night where I actually found it extremely easy to stay awake watching and waiting. It was the night that Evie was born. I'd been driving desperately for an hour to get there in time to make it for the birth. She was born three months premi. And I came running into the ward that night to be told that I was actually too late. The birth had already happened. And I found out in that moment that things had gone, gone wrong and that she'd had to be delivered by an emergency caesarean. And I was told at the same time that Kathy was in recovery somewhere in the hospital. Now all of this for me was pretty overwhelming at that point and I was, I was pretty anxious to see Kathy. But they said I actually wasn't allowed to go and see her until she came back from the ward. And I had no idea how she was doing. So I went in and I, I saw Evie in intensive care for a bit. And then I wandered around the hospital for a couple of hours, restless, until eventually I, I came back to the maternity ward where she was going to be coming back to. And I, and I asked if I could wait for her there. And so they let me perch on a seat in the nursery. And even though it was midnight, and then 1am and she still hadn't come. Do you know what? Not once did I nod off. And strangely for me, not once did I even feel a struggle to stay awake. Because every movement of the nurses, every time someone came through those doors, every time they answered the phone, I was watching, waiting. I was ready. This part of the Bible today, as we've just heard, is all about watching, waiting, being ready. Did you see it? Look at it again with me. Verse 5, watch out. Verse 9, be on your guard. Verse 23, so be on your guard. Verse 33, be on guard, be alert. Verse 35, keep watch. Verse 37, what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. That's six times. It, it's very clear, isn't it? It's very clear what Jesus wants. But most Christians 
read this bit of the Bible and they find it quite troubling. Because although what we need to do is clear, and although that we can see that Jesus is really serious about this, what exactly we're watching out for is not so clear to many of us. Like, did you check to see if the abomination that causes desolation was standing where it shouldn't be today before you came out? I don't think you would have. It's sort of unclear in our minds what's going on. There's a number of reasons why we find what Jesus is saying confusing. One reason is that Jesus is using language here that's steeped in the Old Testament and maybe we're not as familiar with that kind of language as we should be. But another reason that we can run into problems is that sometimes we feel sure that we know that what Jesus is talking about here even before we've really looked at the details. We could read this chapter and we could jump straight to thinking that Jesus is talking about the end of the world but that's not really what he's mostly talking about here. It's only part of what he's talking about. To understand what he's mostly talking about, we've got to make sure that we listen properly to the question that he's answering. So let's do that. Let's look at the question. And first, let's look at how this question is formed. So come with me back to verse 1. In verse 1, we read Jesus is leaving the temple. Now, so far, you might remember, while Jesus has been in Jerusalem, pretty much everything that he's been doing has been centred on the, on the temple. He's been teaching there. He's been debating with the authorities there, debating with hostile parties. And he's absolutely won the day against these, these authorities. There's no doubt. But still, the temple authorities, they refuse to recognise what's obvious, what, what should be clear. They refuse to see that Jesus is the Messiah the true king. And so here, Jesus leaves the temple. And this moment, it it marks a break in Jesus' mission between him and the temple. At no point after this does he return. Now, the disciples from country Galilee, they can't help but be dazzled by the sheer magnificence of the temple complex. And it was magnificent. It's um, said to have being the greatest architectural accomplishment of the first century. One rabbi wrote about the temple. He said, He who has not seen the temple in its full splendor has never seen a beautiful building. Some of the stones that just made up the platform on on which um, the foundation of the temple was set, some of those stones weighed over 100 tons. Here's a model of, of what it was like. And look at the way that it dwarfs the rest of the city. It was magnificent. But listen to what Jesus says about it in verse 2. Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Jesus is saying to his disciples that for all its glory, the temple is now irrelevant. Irrelevant not just to his mission, But now there's a break between the physical temple and the God it claims to be in the service of. The physical temple is irrelevant to the kingdom of God that Jesus is bringing. And this brings us to our first point. Watch out that you don't stand in awe of what's about to be thrown down. Now, if you remember the last couple of weeks, I wasn't here, but I'm guessing that these are the kind of things you've been looking at a little bit. You had a lot to cover 
But, but you would have seen in those readings that Jesus has already been talking about these things. And we saw it last night as well in the Mark drama. So remember back in Mark 11, Jesus cursed the fig tree for not having any fruit. Then he goes and he cleanses the temple and they reject him. And then as they walk back past the fig tree, what's happened? Well, it's withered. And Jesus' point in all of this was to show them that the old order of things is coming under God's judgment. Because they rejected God's son, God was rejecting them. Then chapter 12, we see that same sign, but now we hear it in a parable form. We hear of a vineyard that's been seized by evil people who even kill the son, the heir, when he comes. And so the patience of of the owner of the vineyard runs out and he will destroy them and give that vineyard to another, we read. But what Jesus adds to the picture today, what's, what's kind of an extra detail, is that not only are the authority structures around the temple going to be replaced, but the physical temple itself is also going to be replaced. The, the whole religious system that's based on the temple was coming to an end and God's kingdom would be seen to be governed from a new centre from here on. Now the disciples are being dazzled by the physical stones there in front of them and yet they're in real danger of missing where true magnificence lies. Not in the stones of the temple building but in the stone that the builders are rejecting, Jesus. God's kingdom would now be centred on the Son of Man, enthroned as king at the right hand of God. Like them, I reckon we need to watch out that, that we don't make the same kind of mistake. It makes me think of that old saying, all that glistens is not gold. Because we too can be dazzled by things that are good, but just can't compare to the true king jesus like walk around a cathedral building and it, it, it can be dazzling and a cathedral's not a bad thing but like the temple it's irrelevant to the kingdom of god it's just not worth being dazzled by or walk around st peter's basilica in vatican city with all its paintings and its its marble and its gilding it's dazzling as a building in some ways but like the temple it's irrelevant to the kingdom of god because the kingdom of god is centered on jesus the true king not on buildings of any sort not on organizations or denominations or amazing ceremonies not on huge crowds of people or strong networks of churches or mega churches or churches with amazing worship they're not necessarily bad, they can be great. But it's not really worth being dazzled by them because the kingdom of God, it's just not centred on these things. The kingdom of God is centred on the rule of Jesus, the true king. And this brings us to our second point. Watch out that you stand in awe of the true king only. Now this is where we need to pay careful attention to the question that's been asked. Look at verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they're all about to be fulfilled? 
Now, do you see the question that's being asked? They're sitting, looking over at the temple, and they want to know two things. When the temple will be destroyed, and what will be the sign that it's about to happen? Their question, it's all about the temple's destruction, and Jesus' answer that follows is mostly about the same thing. I would say, and if you've got your Bibles open there, I would say that right up until verse 30, that's what Jesus is talking about, the temple's destruction. It's debatable, but I would say that there's a strong argument for saying all the way to there. But have a look back at verse 5 at how Jesus' answer begins. Jesus says to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. And we see how these people will deceive them in verse 7. When you hear of wars and rumours of wars, don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. The first thing that Jesus tells them that they need to watch out for is being in awe of the events of the world around them in such a way as they could be misled. See, they've asked for a sign that the temple's about to be destroyed. And Jesus is telling them here where they shouldn't go looking for signs. Did you see that? They shouldn't go looking for signs in these kind of places. Wars and famines. They're not signs of the end of the temple or the end of the world for that matter. They're signs of the beginning. The beginning of the birth pains. And in every age, there's that feeling that maybe this is it. Maybe this is the end. And wars and natural disasters, they, they make us uneasy. For us, it, it could be South, I mean, North Korea, or it could be ISIS. But Jesus warns his disciples that, that these things, they're actually just the normal character of the world. And his followers need to watch out that they don't allow people to deceive them by exploiting their fears. This is worth remembering. There is no secret knowledge about God's plans for the future that some people have that others don't. There's no secret knowledge about plans for the future, God's plans, that some Christians have got and others don't. Jesus has made it clear. And Jesus' message here is that in the face of wars and and, and famines and these kind of things, essentially we just need to keep calm and carry on. And then Jesus tells them what keeping calm and carrying on looks like for people who belong to him. Verse 9. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you'll stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Notice here that being on guard isn't about avoiding being persecuted. You're not on guard so that you don't get persecuted. Being on guard is actually about watching that they're ready to stand up and be counted for Jesus no matter what it costs. They're not to be in awe of the kings that they stand before. They're to stand before those kings in awe of the one true king, Jesus. Now all these things that Jesus talks about here are are exactly what we know of what happened in the years between his resurrection and the destruction of the temple in AD 70. There were wars, just like the Roman Civil War. 
There were famines, like the one in 41 AD or 42 or 45 AD. Christians stood before kings, like Paul before Agrippa or before the emperor. And the gospel was being preached not just to Jews, but to all nations. But still at this point, have you noticed that Jesus hasn't really said when the temple will be destroyed? And he hasn't really said what the sign will be that this is about to happen. But here he does in verse 14. This is the sign. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, maybe for us this sounds pretty strange, but Jesus here is is referencing the second half of the book of Daniel, where this phrase is is mentioned a few times, the abomination that causes desolation in different ways. In Daniel, it was a prediction of of a king called Antiochus Epiphanes, who desecrated the temple back then, uh, or in the years to come after Daniel, by setting up an altar to Zeus in the temple and sacrificing pigs. It's, it's hard now to say with absolute certainty what this sign was in history, looking back. But it was something that the disciples back then would understand and recognise. Luke says it slightly differently in, in, in 2120. He says, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you'll know that its desolation is near. One possibility was that the abomination that causes desolation was when a a group called the Zealots seized control of the temple and they set up their own puppet kind of high priest. And there was so much infighting in Jerusalem at the time that in the end there was actually fighting between the different parties in Jerusalem within the temple itself and the blood of of some of the Zealots was actually spilt in the temple, desecrating it. This happened about AD 67, 68 just a couple of years before AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. And if this was the sign, it was just enough time for people to flee before the Roman armies completely encircled Judea and destroyed it and ended up encircling Jerusalem. And five months later, the city fell and the temple was completely destroyed. You know, at that time, over a million people were killed and the temple was burnt and then literally torn apart so that not one stone of the buildings was left on another. Apparently, according to Josephus, the heat was so hot that the gold melted and was between the cracks of the stones and the the soldiers pulled it apart to get it out. All that's left today is, is the wailing wall, but that was actually not part of the temple but part of the structure underneath it just to form the foundation. Here are some of the blocks which Titus's army threw down off the wall. It was a horrible massacre. But because of Jesus' warning here, the Christians didn't make the mistake of getting caught up in this fight against Rome. And neither did they get deceived into getting involved in the squabbles amongst the Jews for control of the temple. They didn't flee to Jerusalem for shelter from the Romans. They got out because they knew from Jesus' warning that the temple was no longer where God's kingdom was centred. Instead, they believed that Jesus would be seen to be enthroned as the true king of this world when the temple was destroyed. 
They believed that this would show Jesus enthroned at the right hand of God. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, I'm sure you have, but today, the idea of a God who judges like this, people find so hard to accept. And more and more so, they find it so hard to accept. We can feel like God has got no right to judge like this, or people do today. Or they feel like even if God's got the, the right to judge like this, that somehow it's still wrong that he exercises that right. It's almost like we think we're more righteous than God. We're more pure. We're more merciful. But that's just not true. God has given them every chance to accept his mercy. He's given them every proof that Jesus is the Messiah. But they chose the temple over the God that the temple pointed to. And God's judgment in the end is actually to hand them over to their own folly. They chose nationalistic pride over God and that's what led to their rebellion against Rome and their infighting and ultimately their destruction. God is actively judging them but he does it by handing them over to what they've chosen for themselves. And of course, he'll do the same for us too. It's never okay to reject the mercy of God. People might struggle with that concept today, but it's just the way it is. And the outcome will always be that God will actively hand us over to our folly. If we reject the rule of Christ, the only true king, we too will face the consequences of that. So stepping back from this just for a second... What's the point? What's Jesus' point in telling all of this to them and through Mark to us? There's lots that we could say, actually, heaps, and we don't have time to. But clearly, first of all, this is warning spared the lives of many of his followers. They put their hope in Jesus and not in the temple. But secondly, this still does speak to us today powerfully. Because it helps us to see that Jesus really is enthroned as the ruler of this world. God's kingdom really is centered on him. And his rule is not to be trifled with. It tells us that we really do need to watch out that we stand in awe of the true king only. He's not a philosophy or a a feeling or an idea. He's not a, a distant, absent harmless, abstract kind of king. Jesus is enthroned as the king of this world and he offers us mercy now, but he will return to judge if we reject that mercy. It's at this point that Jesus now shifts his focus. Look at verse 31. In 31 he says, Heaven and earth will pass away but my words will never pass away. And having mentioned heaven and earth passing away, he then says in verse 32, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Jesus stops talking about those days, those days leading up to the temple's destruction, and now he's talking about that day, that final day, when he returns. 
And Jesus, he's given his disciples the, the signs that mark when the temple's about to be destroyed. They can read that time, like they can read from a fig tree when summer's about to come. But there's no sign that they can look for to see the end of history coming and the return of Jesus. There's just no sign. We can't know when it's going to happen. But notice, nonetheless, still we're told to be on our guard, to keep watch. But not for a sign, but instead we're to keep watch that we're ready for the return of Jesus at all times. And this is our last point. Watch out that you are always ready for when the king returns. Look at verse 33. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. In verse 35, therefore keep watch because you do not know when the the owner of the house will come back. Jesus says we, we wait for the owner of the house to return. So staying awake is about faithfully caring for his house as we wait to welcome him back. Which means there's just never a point where we can say, I don't care that this is your house, Jesus. I'm going to live like it's mine. And notice, we're not permitted to sleep during this night. It's not like a bus ride home or or a uni lecture. This is more like waiting for Kathy in the hospital ward, but of, of course far more serious. We keep watch to welcome back the true king of our lives and of our world. So I want to finish by getting you to pinch yourself. Not literally, though maybe that could be a good idea at this point. Do that if you like, with no judgment, that's fine. But I want to ask some questions to help us see if we're ready for Jesus' return or or if we're actually in danger of falling asleep on the job. Now, I wanted to make an acronym that spelled out PINCH, P-I-N-C-H, mostly because I heard that Scott last week had A, B, C, D for you and I thought I couldn't be outdone. But it wasn't really happening from this week, so instead I've just got a couple of questions. But here's the first question. Oops, there's the acronym that didn't happen. But stay tuned, I'll see what I can do. Watch out. Here's the first question. The most important question you'll ever ask. Is Jesus your king? So you can't be ready for his return if he's not your king. And if he's not your king, why not? Why are you overlooking God's mercy? Why hasn't it captured your heart? God has given Jesus for you. Jesus has died. And God is giving you time, even right now. He's giving you the evidence that you need to see that Jesus really is enthroned as king of this world. The resurrection, the destruction of the temple, scripture. Jesus is poised, ready to return to judge this world. Why would you treat his mercy as something to be overlooked? This world is his, all of it belongs to him. And he's coming back to his house. Being ready means, of course, recognizing him as king. But here's the second question, and it's the last question. If Jesus is your king, are you living in his service? Keeping watch and being ready for his return means remaining in his service. 
whereas falling asleep means giving up serving him and, and serving other things. Now, there are just all sorts of other things that we can be living in the service of instead of living in the service of Jesus. But here are some of the main ones, and this is where I think I've managed to spell out pinch at this point. So take that, Scott. <laughs> are we living in the service of Jesus or are we in the service of people? So whether that's a relationship or a spouse or kids, interests, you know, like our hobbies, sport, travel, our experiences, even exercise. Our name, our reputation, our achievements, career, our job, or our house, where we live. It seems to me these are the kind of things that we could be serving in the place of Jesus. In all these areas, we can live awake in the service of Jesus, ready for his return. Or we can live asleep in the service of self. Like, if right now Jesus were to come back, Would he say to us, the way you've looked after your kids and the way that you've been there for your wife, well done, that's exactly what I wanted you to do. Or would he be like, hey, why didn't you tell your kids about me? Why did you tell them that that school and, and sport and work was more important than me? Yeah, I know you didn't say it in those words, but everything about your life communicated that to them. Or taking a different one of those things, house. Would Jesus say, the way you bought that house that was just below your means, instead of buying that house just above your means, so that you didn't have to be a slave to working overtime, so that you could be there for your family, so that you could be around at church and have time to serve me, well done. That's that's exactly what I wanted you to do. Or if Jesus came back now, would that conversation go differently? When we're wide awake, we make our decisions with Jesus as our one true king. But when we start making decisions like what house we buy, who we marry, our career, what interests we pursue, when we make those decisions with little thought for what Jesus wants, we show that we're in danger of nodding off on the job. It's just never, ever the case that it doesn't matter whether we live for Jesus or not. It always matters. Being alert and and keeping watch means caring about living for Jesus. I said at the beginning that it was easy for me that night to stay alert, waiting for Kathy. You know, I didn't have any moments that night when I didn't really care whether she was coming back or not. The whole time I, I had a single focus, her return. And when she finally got there on the ward, I can tell you what, the relief was enormous. Waiting for Jesus, it's not a chore. Not if we really know him. When he returns, the relief will be enormous. He will rule this world enthroned as king and he'll rule it with justice and mercy. Watching the the Mark drama last night, I just sat there so thankful, thinking how great is our God? How great is Jesus? I personally can't wait till Jesus comes back and ends the the pain and the mess in this world. I can't wait to hear him saying, now my dwelling place is among the people, not in the temple, 
But God's dwelling place is Jesus living with his people. And I can't wait to hear him say, I myself will be with them and be their God. I will wipe every tear from their eyes. What about you? Are you ready for that? Is Jesus who you're living for as you wait? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you've revealed so clearly to us in Jesus. That your plans, your kingdom, your rule is centred on him. Lord, help us to see that. To see how great he is. And to wait alert, ready, with single focus. Lord, in the way that we handle our relationships, our hobbies, our interests, our own name and our, our jobs and our house even, Lord, in all these things, may it be in the service of Jesus. Lord, help us to see that we live for him while we wait for him. Help us to be ready for his return. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.